the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. By now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law of the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is it God the God of Jews only? Is it he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Please be seated. Someone has written that one difficulty that presents itself while working through a book like Romans in small segments is that it's very hard to find a place to stop. And it's because Paul frequently doesn't stop. We have some very long sentences, some very precise but, but detailed logic that Paul offers up to sort of lead us through these arguments for how God has been at work in our lives because of our sin to bring salvation, to bring the righteousness of Christ and to sanctify us, to purify us so that we can walk in his ways even in this life and ultimately to prove that he is God and Lord over all. It's true throughout the book. It's true even within the more limited scope of Romans chapter 3. So if any of you have a really good memory, you may recall back the last Sunday of November when we last looked at Romans, we looked at the very same text that was read for us just a few moments ago, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. But on that occasion, we mostly considered the power in those two little words, but now this temporal contrast that the Apostle Paul used to transition from all of the teaching that he made about sin to his teaching about salvation by grace through faith. And it's a profound distinction that is reflected in those two little words, but now. Because as it is written, Paul said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And furthermore, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Noting this contrast, William Hendrickson put it this way, dark and dismal is man's condition. 
This darkness and despair is unfathomable and universal. It envelops all. Is it any wonder then that the Apostle Paul spent two and a half chapters dealing with that? But Hendrickson goes on, then suddenly a light, the very light which previously had flickered for a brief moment, comes streaming in. Hope revives. And this hope is found in nothing Nothing other than the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I grew up in the Baptist church singing an old hymn that put it this way. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There was another old song that we sang that said, I need no other argument, I need no other plea, but perhaps it would have been more correct to sing, there is no other argument, because there isn't. There is no other plea, because it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It's enough because... We were dead in trespasses and sins, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, there it is again in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, here at the fullness of time, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So praise be to God. All glory to our Savior Jesus Christ. His righteousness has now been manifested in the very face of the sin that would have swallowed us whole. His salvation has been proclaimed as a light in the darkness that shines into the gloomiest corners of our life and brings the grace and mercy of God to us. But at the same time, we need to be careful here. Salvation was, is, and always will be by grace through faith apart from works of the law. But Paul tells us the law and the prophets, the scriptures of the old covenant, that's what those words summarize. The scriptures of the old covenant bear witness to this very thing that salvation has always been by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the scriptures of the old covenant do this by virtue of the fact that they always, always, always pointed away from a righteousness based on human merit. The people of the Old Covenant misunderstood this. They thought that the law had been given so that they could be righteous through their own works and deeds and merit salvation on their own terms. But the law was never given for that. The law always pointed away from human merit. So when Paul wrote the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, he's speaking very specifically of the works of the law. He's not speaking of that to which the law pointed because it pointed to Christ and it still points to Christ. John Calvin addressed this in his commentary on Romans when he wrote this righteousness then which God communicates to man and accepts alone and owns as righteousness has been revealed, he says, without the law. That is, without the aid of the law and the law is to be understood as meaning works. For it is not proper to refer this to its teaching, 
which he immediately adduces as bearing witness to the gratuitous righteousness of faith. This is confirmed by Paul himself in verse 31 of Romans chapter 3, where he wrote, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Does this proclamation of salvation by grace through faith nullify or abrogate or do away with the law of God? By no means. May it never be, as one translation has it. On the contrary, by this faith we uphold the law. And as he wrote in another place, Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So often these days it is presented as exactly that. So often these days we are told it doesn't matter how we live. We are not under law. We are under grace. Revel in the grace of God and just, just enjoy life. But Paul asks, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. By the way, that verse, Galatians 3.22, is a really good summary statement of the first five chapters of the book of Romans. We get two and a half chapters under scripture, the law and the prophets imprisoned everything under sin, and then the next two and a half chapters reflected in that idea so that the promise, salvation by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So we are not saved, we cannot be saved, and we cannot emphasize this enough by the works of the law. We cannot even contribute to our salvation by the works of the law. There are those who have taught that grace kind of takes us part way there, and then after that it's up to us, it's up to us to do good works or to do works of contrition or something along those lines. But Paul said, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We cannot be saved by works of the law. But at the same time, we are not saved. We cannot be saved by a faith that overthrows the law of God. By a so-called faith that pushes aside everything that God said in the old covenant scriptures and acts as though they were unnecessary, as though in the words of one prominent preacher, we could just unhitch from the Old Testament. And we cannot do so since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law, in fact, was and remains our tutor to bring us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith. In other words, evangelism cannot be divorced from the word, it cannot be divorced from the Bible. It cannot be divorced from either the Old or the New Testaments. It cannot be summed up in a call to just believe in Jesus, as it so often has, or worse still these days, to just believe. Because there are people out there who are saying it really doesn't even matter what you believe in. Just believe in something. Believe in God, believe in Jesus, believe in the idols of the nations, believe in yourself, just believe. But that is not the gospel. 
The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe it is, was, and it always will be, but we need to hear the whole verse. Paul did not write, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, period, full stop, as if God had done away with the law altogether, choosing rather out of all possible conditions the intrinsically unworthy act of faith as well as the imperfect obedience of faith, to be a condition of salvation, graciously wishing to count this as perfect obedience and to look upon it as worthy of the reward of eternal life. If I can borrow a phrase from the canons of Dort. And all that is said there, all that is said in the book of Romans is to say there was not one way of salvation before Christ, the law, and another way of salvation after Christ, grace, for instance, God did not do away with the law when he revealed his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe. Grace is not God's acceptance of a lesser standard. Somewhat more recently than the canons of Dort, the late R.C. Sproul wrote, when we claim justification is by faith or through faith, we have to be careful that we do not understand that to be justified by faith is to be justified because we have faith. We're not to understand that it's in the sense that our faith is now the supreme work that makes us righteous. The language here of being justified by faith or through faith simply means that faith is the means by which we lay hold of Christ. And I would add it is the means by which Christ lays hold of us. It is the means, Sproul continues, by which the righteousness of God is bestowed upon us. So we have an important question then, what is faith? What does it mean to believe? If it is through faith in Christ that we receive this righteousness from God, how does that come to be bestowed on us? Well, by faith... And faith, according to the writer to the Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, he elaborates on that himself in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1 when he says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we go from faith as a substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things not seen, to without faith, without that kind of faith, it is impossible to please God. For if we would draw near to him, we must believe that he exists, yes, and we must also believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. If this was a sermon on the book of Hebrews, I would say, and then we have to understand what it means to seek him. The Catechism refines it a bit for us, saying that true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. And I know I preached about this not that long ago, but it has to be said. It is that. It is a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It's just not only that. It is a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace, 
earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. Lloyd-Jones put it this way in his classic commentary on Romans, faith includes these three aspects or three elements. It means a knowledge of the truth. He who would come to God must believe that he is. It means assent to the truth. There has to be that aspect that I understand this applies to me, as we see in the catechism, not only others, but I too. And there also has to be a trust in the truth. If we believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, what will we do? We will diligently seek him. There are always those three elements in faith, Lloyd-Jones goes on, in true faith, an awareness of the truth, assent to it, and a committal of oneself to it. Faith, in other words, is not merely an intellectual awareness of the truth or even an intellectual acceptance of the truth. It's not a mere intellectual awareness that about 2,000 years ago there was a child born in Bethlehem who grew up, who was known as Jesus the Christ, who died on a cross and probably even rose from the dead. And it's not merely enough to have that assurance that he did rise from the dead. That would be a mere intellectual acceptance of the truth. To prove this is not enough, James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one. That was the primo sort of confession of the old covenant people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You believe that God is one, James said, you do well. And then with a little bit of a sarcastic edge, he says, even the demons believe and shudder. So the demons have intellectual awareness. They understand that God is one. They know who he is. They have encountered him before, and they, above all, know the reality of who God is. They have an intellectual acceptance even. They tremble. It's hard to believe, but demons have a sense that many humans don't have. Many humans who say, well, I believe in God. I know he's there somewhere, and he's watching, and, you know, He's probably spoken to us in the Bible or something like that, but they don't have the sensibility to actually tremble, to fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Demons tremble, so they have intellectual awareness and arguably intellectual acceptance, but Lloyd-Jones goes on, you can have that and still be without faith. Because faith means a real trusting in him and what he has done on our behalf and for our salvation. That, according to the apostle, is a way of obtaining this righteousness. There is a knowledge, there is an intellectual knowledge. There is an assent to that to say, yes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And not just sinners generally, he came into the world to save me and I trust him and him alone. It is, as we noted from the catechism, a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that I too, not just the world in general or sinners in general or really bad sinners, I too have had my sins forgiven and have been granted salvation. That's at the essence of what true faith is. 
So it's not just some sort of a vague spirituality that makes someone feel as though they have been in touch with the transcendent at some point in some way. It's not through all the feely-goody feelings that I get when I sing my favorite praise song. No, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And not through faith in Jesus Christ as I perceive him to be but through faith in Jesus Christ as God has revealed him to be in the holy and divine scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments. Through faith in Jesus Christ as the only sacrifice. Through faith in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer who was revealed first to Adam and Eve in paradise and then portrayed by the, proclaimed by the holy patriarchs and prophets and pro- portrayed in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law through faith in Jesus Christ who came to become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that Jesus Christ. This faith, true faith, is nothing less than the means by which we know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And this according to John chapter 17 verse 3 is the very definition of salvation and eternal life. To believe then, to truly believe, begins with knowledge. It begins there, it has to begin there. We can't believe in something we do not know. It begins with knowledge because it is to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God sent into the world to reconcile us to God. It's also an assent, an understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world to reconcile the world to God was not only in a general sense, as I mentioned. We know the world is a pretty much messed up place, and we know that it needs to be reconciled. But this ascent comes down to a recognition in the very particular sense that you and I, that all of us are sinners, who apart from Jesus Christ stand under the wrath and judgment of God. It's not as if we are in some sort of a neutral place in life and we hope that we sort of hear the gospel and we get to move on into something positive and avoid something negative. We're in the negative. We stand condemned under the wrath and curse of the law of God and Christ came into the world not just to reconcile things in that vague sense. He came in the world to reconcile you and me. And he accomplished that through his death on the cross. Personally and individually, we need to be reconciled to the Father. But faith finally is to commit ourselves to trust in Christ and Christ alone. And that means we're no longer looking to our works. I'm not patting myself on the back on Saturday evening saying I've had a pretty good week. I think, I think I'm okay in my relationship with God. I'm not looking to my own merit. None of us should be looking to our own merit. It means that we stop trusting in our feelings or looking to our feelings. Feelings come and go. We can have these grand religious experiences, these mountaintop experiences, 
where we feel like we've really connected with God. And I could take a lot of time this morning to give you a list of people who at one time wrote about having those kinds of experiences, who were really connected with God, who had the Holy Spirit's power working in them and through them, who have since completely turned away and renounced their faith. Deconstructed, I think, is the popular word today. Feelings come and go. We cannot look to our feelings. We cannot look to our works. We cannot look to the strength of our own faith. Because there are going to be days when we might think, I really do, I I really trust in Christ. And there are going to be other times when we wrestle with that. And we say, "I'm, I'm just not sure. If we look to anything to do with ourselves, we will never have assurance. We need to look to the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To know, to really know and to confess before the world that out of sheer grace, not because of anything that we could ever do in a bazillion lifetimes, but out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too. You too have had your sins forgiven. So we come here to this table to testify every month when we come that all of your sins, not some of them, not the ones you committed before you got saved, not the ones that you remembered and confessed before you went to bed last night, all of your sins have been completely forgiven. Not partially forgiven, not mostly forgiven, completely forgiven for the sake of his body and blood sacrificed on Calvary's cross. Out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, Not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven and have been made forever right with God. doesn't matter how I feel about it today or how I felt about it yesterday. I have been made forever right with God through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, my Savior, and have been granted salvation. That's true faith. That's what we're called to when we hear that the righteousness of God is bestowed upon all those who come through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the promise of God. I've probably said it 300 times this year. I'll say it 300 times next year if God is willing. God always keeps his promises. So going back to the word of assurance that I read, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Faith, as Lloyd-Jones wrote, means seeing this truth, assenting to it, and casting yourself upon it exactly as you are. For now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This truly is the word of the Lord, the gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let's go into this new year standing on those promises. Let's pray. Father, as you have proclaimed to us through your word, this great gospel, this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, which brings us in as citizens of your kingdom, that allows us to bow before you and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord in a way that gives glory and honor and praise to you. Give us ears to hear and give us hearts, Father, to believe and give us a will to trust in you and you alone, Lord Jesus, that we may find salvation not in anything inside of ourselves, but in that righteousness which you purchased for us on Calvary's cross and which your Holy Spirit has applied to us through faith and regeneration. And that, Father, we may live in all of this to your glory and honor and praise. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.